Amen. You can be seated. And as you do so, if you want to open up your Bible to Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to pop around to a few other places, but that's where we'll be at for the kind of majority of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I want to, as you are turning in your Bible, just set the scene for you a little bit. If I could just kind of lay out some details that we don't get in the text, but we know through the history of study of the text, and just to give you a little bit of a picture, right? Imagine that you're in a church or you're in a house, really is a better way to say it, in Rome. Maybe you've been invited there, maybe you've been coming there, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian, but the room is packed. And you, you start to hear rumors around town that a Christian woman has come to Rome with a letter from the Apostle Paul. And whispers start to circulate that on the Lord's Day, this woman is going to be at Prisca and Aquila's house to read the Apostle's letter to the Christians who gather there. So people start to speculate, what do you think Paul has to say? Is he going to address the growing tensions between Gentiles and Jews here in the church? Is he going to tell us that he's coming to Rome? Is he going to answer all of our questions about God and how we can understand our relationship to him? So you show up on Sunday to a house full of men, women, boys and girls, Jews and Gentiles. It's loud. It's hot. The room is crowded. Because Rome is a global city, there's people from all over the world there. Uh, There's wealthy, there's poor, there's servants and rulers, everybody packed into this house. And at some point, the host stands up in front of you and they introduce Phoebe. And they say, this is our sister, Phoebe. The apostle Paul has sent her to us with the letter. We are to welcome her and and, and spare no expense in inviting her into our lives. So Phoebe, a Gentile woman, steps up in front of the room and she begins to read one of the most important letters ever written. And she begins, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, who in that room knew that as Phoebe's voice read that letter, that the words that echoed in that room would echo throughout the rest of human history, around the world, in a variety of languages? See, Romans is a treasure chest of truth. John Calvin, the great theologian, said about Romans that when anyone gains a knowledge of this letter, they have a doorway open to them of all the most hidden treasures in Scripture. It is a treasure chest of truth. Let me double down on this. For however long we're in the book of Romans, I can assure you of this. If you will give time to meditate, consider, read, study, and listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans, the truth of it will reverberate in your life with God for the rest of your life. If you dig deep wells here, it will pay dividends for you and your walk with Jesus for the rest of your life. But before we dive into this letter, we have to learn about who wrote the letter because we don't get the backstory of Paul in Romans. We get it in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to read of the first time that we encounter Paul, who was going by the name Saul at that time. I'm going to read it from Acts 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 1. And the words will be on the screen behind me so you can follow along. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. It's an invitation for you to respond and to say, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. That's a good thing. Let me read Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when we encounter Paul, we're really hearing about him as Saul. And the reason those two names kind of get used in a way that seems uh, interchangeable is that Saul and Paul are the same person. But oftentimes when addressing Hebrew context, Saul would be the name that would be used. And when addressing predominantly Gentile context, it would be Paul. So I'm going to refer to him as Paul, but Saul, Paul, same guy, all right? They're the same person. If I'm going to refer to him as Paul that way, I don't have to keep tripping over saying Saul and Paul. All right, you get it. I hope you're with me. So Paul, here, when we first meet him, is presiding over an execution. He's presiding over the execution of the first Christian martyr, whose name is Stephen. Stephen was a deacon in the early church. And Stephen is being stoned to death. Why? Because he is testifying to the truth of what Jesus Christ has said. Because Stephen believes who Jesus says he was, God in the flesh, Son of God, who secured the salvation of God's people, the promised King and Messiah, Jesus the Christ, because Stephen believes that message and is proclaiming that message, the Jewish religious leaders bring Stephen in and they condemn him to death. The people are furious at what Stephen is saying. So when we hear about those who stoned Stephen, it says they laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our Paul, the author to the letter to the church in Rome. Right after Stephen dies, Acts says, and Saul approved of his execution. So who is this cold-blooded killer? Who is this hooded executioner? This Paul was from Tarsus. That was his hometown. And to be from Tarsus was to be from somewhere. Tarsus was a global city. It would have been like saying, I'm from New York or I'm from L.A., okay? It was a city of significance. It had notoriety in the ancient Near East. So Saul was from some place. He had a little bit of credibility just by virtue of where he was from. But he had a very interesting story because while he was raised in a predominantly Gentile context, he was raised as a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the strictest of the strict Jewish religious worshipers. The Pharisees were all about maintaining pure Jewish identity in the face of an empire that was oppressing them. So for them, it was all about the pure Judaism. That's what the Pharisees wanted to hold. And so while Saul is from a place that was a global city, he has kind of been embedded in a very strict religious community, the Pharisees. And he was taught by none other than Gamaliel. And I know you guys all follow Gamaliel on Instagram. He's a big deal. Uh, maybe not for us today, but at this point in history, he would have had a blue check mark next to his name, okay? Would have been an influencer, okay? Uh, he was a big deal. To be taught Judaism by Gamaliel would have been to be like taught math by Einstein or painting by Picasso. Gamaliel was a big deal, and Saul was a star student, okay? He was 
a very, very, very influential young man in the ancient Near East among the Jewish community. He's a key leader in the attempt to destroy this new kind of root or branch of Judaism. Because at this time, they did not understand Christians to be doing a new thing. They understood it as merely a corruption of Judaism. So like Christians really weren't a defined community yet at this point at Stephen's martyrdom. They're really just a kind of perversion of faithful Judaism. That's how the Jewish establishment saw them. Not as those are the Christians, but it's like those are the blasphemous Jews who believe that Christ was the Son of God. That's how they viewed them. So when Saul is presiding over Stephen's execution, he's doing in his mind what the best thing could possibly be, which is to say, I'm opposing this lie. I'm opposing this blasphemy because Jesus wasn't who he says he is, and all these people keep saying it, and they're going to lead faithful Jews away. So in Saul's mind, he's a man on a mission, and the mission is I am going to stamp out as hard and as fast as I can, this lie that is a corruption of truth. That's what Saul is viewing in this situation. That's how he views himself. That's how the Jewish community viewed him. And what we get in this moment is an incredible picture of Paul's life before the letter. Because when we encounter him writing the letter to the church in Rome, we are many, many, many years after the martyrdom of Stephen. And a lot has changed because Paul is no longer an executioner. Now he's a church planter for the sake of Christ. Paul has experienced the transformation, but before that transformation was this life. Was this life a life of opposing what God was doing in the world through Jesus Christ and those who follow him? And we may look at Paul and feel like, wow, what an extreme example of somebody whose life before the Lord was this wicked, right? I mean, a murderer presiding over execution. But see, Paul's testimony and his life before Christ is really all of ours. It may not seem as stark. It may not seem as glaring. You may think, well, listen, I'm not a murderer, nor one who has condoned murder. But what we see in Paul is this. Paul has been born into this world on a mission. And by nature, because of sin, that mission is to reject and destroy Christ as opposed to rejoicing and declaring Christ. And that's what Paul was doing. He was doing exactly what sin does to our heart. He was operating in accordance with his broken condition by nature, which is to say, I will reject Christ and who he claims to be. I will oppose his people, and I will make it my mission to either ignore or destroy Jesus and those who follow him. That's what sin does to all of us by nature. It's just merely in Paul's life, it looks a little bit more stark to us. It looks a little bit different to us. But Paul's life before the letter is our life before the letter. And yet God is kind to pursue his people. And he pursues Saul. So if you flip one page over, you're going to find in Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. You're going to find his conversion story. Let me read it for you because there's something pivotal we get in this story that is going to be crucial for us to understand what all of Romans is about. Because in Paul's conversion story, we get a little bitty kind of glimpse of the key theological cornerstone in Paul's whole mind, his whole thought. Let me read it for you. Acts 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, these are people who follow Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You see, Saul is en route to persecute Christians. He's gone to the Jewish religious leaders and he said, give me a license to kill. That's what the letter's about. Why does he need a letter? Because he can't just roll up into town without any supervision or approval. He needs the authority to go in and to bind these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for judgment, right? Just like he did with Stephen. That's what he's going to Damascus to do. And on the road, he is confronted by the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, okay? That's what it says, that suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now pause here. Who is Saul going to Damascus to persecute? Louder. You know it. He's going to persecute who? Christians. Christians. He's going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And yet when Jesus confronts him, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then uh, Saul asks the question, who are you, Lord? And Jesus doubles down. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This seems like an inconsequential detail, but I'll tell you, in this moment of Saul's story, we get a glimpse of what will go on to be the cornerstone of everything that he has to say, which is this. When Saul is confronted by the Lord Jesus, he is confronted by a startling reality. This Lord, he identifies with his people. This Lord identifies with his people to such a degree that while Saul is going to persecute Christians, Jesus can say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me, the Lord Jesus? This is the doctrine of union with Christ. And if you're taking notes, write it down because I'm going to say it 10,000 times over the next two years because in my mind, it is the cornerstone for understanding all that Paul has to say In particular, the letter to the church in Rome is this, that this Lord Jesus is different than the lords of the world. He's different than Caesar. Why? Because Caesar leads by putting as much distance between himself and the people he rules over, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ closes that gap by grace entirely. He doesn't look at us, he doesn't look at Paul and say, you stay as far away from me as possible, but by grace, he brings us into the home that God invites us into. And what is the doorway into that home? It is Christ Jesus. This is the doctrine of union with Christ, which means that what can be said of Christ can be said of you as a Christian. Why? Because you're in him. Everything Paul wants to tell you about the gospel in Rome, the gospel in Romans can be summarized this way. God saves his people by grace through faith in Christ. That's what he's doing. And here's the tremendous reality for us. Paul's story of transformation, it's an incredible picture to us that whatever we think that God might be able to hold against us, God is saying, I will not hold anything against you as you come to me. You see, when the risen Lord Jesus confronts Saul on this road, he doesn't confront him in order to condemn him. He confronts him in order to convert him. I mean, that's typically opposite the way that we think about God seeing us at our worst, right? Saul is a cold-blooded executioner. That's what we've heard about him in Acts 7. He's on the road to Damascus 
to imprison and kill more Christians. God is finding Saul at his very worst. When he's not just caught up in a little bit of sin, but when he is embedded in the tentacles of sin, in direct opposition to God, in direct rejection of the Lord Jesus and all that he stands for. And it is at this moment that God says, you belong to me. You belong to me. Are you afraid of God finding you at your worst? Let me tell you, when God finds us, he only finds us at our worst. And do you know what we're met with? Never what we think we'll find. We think we'll find judgment, more shame. What do you think, what are you afraid of that God would see in your life if he pulled back the curtains? He already knows, and his answer is grace, right? I mean, that's good news. It was good news for Paul on the road to Damascus, and it's good news for us. And I've often heard about this story. Well, listen, Pastor, I get it. If there was this incredible divine moment where God confronted me and and a light shone forth and he spoke to me and I heard his voice, well, if there was a moment where that happened, listen, Pastor, I would live my life like Paul, right? I mean, if God would just show himself to me and speak to me, then I would change my life. Then I would believe what God has to say. And yet today is merely one in a thousand moments where God is doing exactly that. Where he's inviting you in to hear from him and to hear him say, whatever you think will keep me from you, it won't. Whatever Paul thought would keep him from God, it didn't. God steps into the situation and by his grace and mercy pulls Paul in to life with God in Jesus. And it's costly. It's immediately costly, right? Because Paul had an identity and a mission apart from Jesus, right? I mean, can you imagine that? He tells us he's got great Jewish credentials, right? Nobody was more embedded in this identity than Paul was. He tells us that later in one of his other letters, essentially saying, I had more credibility apart from God than anyone does. And what does Paul immediately lose in this confrontation? He loses his identity, he loses his mission, and he loses his ability to see, which is basically the most ham-fisted metaphor in Scripture for God saying, you can't do anything without me. You're blind. You thought you saw what was right, and you didn't. But yet, Paul's story doesn't end in this moment of transformation. He's led by the hand like a child into Damascus, the very city where he was headed towards imprisoning people like Ananias. God takes him to a disciple named Ananias. And what happens? Well, we hear that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's converted, which means he's made new. He is forgiven. He's given a new heart, new desires. And why all of this? Well, God tells us in Acts Chapter 9, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You see, God rescued Paul so that Paul would rejoice in God. God rescued Paul so that so Paul would declare the glorious grace of God in Jesus so that he could look out his audience and tell them genuinely there is nothing in all of heaven that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Why does God do this? Why does God do this work? Why did he call Abraham out of Ur? Why did he call Paul on the Damascus Road? Why did he call a sin-sick seven-year-old in East Texas with a broken heart and damage in his future? Why does God rescue us in this way? 
grace. Grace is the answer. There's nothing more sophisticated to it than it is the delighting love of God to rescue people. And whether it is Saul or me or you, God is telling us in this story, in this testimony of Paul, before we even open the letter, he is giving us a picture of his great grace, that there is nothing in all of heaven that can separate us from God. But Paul, when we find him at the letter, this is who he is. And it's been many years removed since his conversion. He's been transformed. He goes away for a little while to prepare his heart. And then he becomes one of the most proactive and fruitful church planters in all of the ancient world. He starts planting churches everywhere and helping pastor the pastors who are leading those churches everywhere. And we don't really know about the origins of the church in Rome. We don't. Scholars believe and speculate that Jewish Christians established the church there, that Gentiles who hung out in synagogues began to kind of jump into the life of the church there. I mean, it's clear that Paul didn't do it because in Romans 16, he tells us he's never been there, but he intends to go one day. In AD 49, which was before 2020, if you can remember that far back, in AD 49, under the reign of Claudius, due to changing politics and tension in the city, Jews were exiled from Rome. They were kicked out. But many would return under the next emperor, Nero, okay? Meaning by the time the Jews returned, four to five years later, what had started as primarily a church of Jewish Christians, the core was now Gentile Christians, and Jewish Christians were coming back in. And there was tension there, okay? They were renegotiating kind of how life together would look like, okay? They had kind of forgotten that. So they were going to have to learn how to be a family together. So Paul opens up the letter saying what? Identifying himself. But he's no longer who he once was. So how does he identify himself? He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. See, Paul is no longer a murderer of those who worship Christ. He is now a servant of Christ Jesus. This phrase, servant of Christ, it's not used haphazardly. It's a title, it's a reference to a title that is given to Abraham, Moses, Amos, Isaiah, the term servant there is a Greek word, doulos. It, can, it conveys the idea of complete devotion and surrender. Essentially, when Paul calls himself a servant of Christ, we're to hear this. Paul has been transformed from a devotion to destroying Christ to a devotion to declaring Christ. Paul has been utterly transformed. Where once he served himself and false idols, now he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, this is the fundamental transformation of all who proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord and King. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to God and Christ. Why would Paul call himself this? Because Paul's experienced what you and I know as well and what it's easy to forget. Once you've had a head-on collision with grace, you cannot walk away from that unchanged. Paul had that moment. He had a head-on collision with grace. Everything had to be different because Paul no longer belonged to himself. He belonged to God in Christ. That's a radical change in our identity. It's a fundamental difference between how we're born into this world and how we're born again in this world. And what does he say? He's a servant of Christ, but he also uses another title. What is it? Apostle called to be an apostle. Again, not a term used haphazardly. An important term. Apostles were an office. They were a kind of people marked by one unique reality. What is it? They had witnessed the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are no more apostles because there are no more among us who have witnessed with their physical eyes the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is essentially saying, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm an apostle because I have seen him. And he's saying, this is my message. What is his message? I've been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I'm about to tell you how we're going to define gospel for the whole series in Romans. So if you're taking notes, you're writing stuff down, this would be a good thing to write down. When we think about this phrase, gospel of God, because Romans is a book about the gospel. The gospel is embedded in every single line of the book of Romans. And this gospel can be defined this way. The gospel of God is that God saves and God reigns. God saves and God reigns. That's the good news of the gospel that Paul is telling us. It's God's gospel. God saves. He does the work. God reigns. He is going to be faithful to the end. These are two dimensions, what we might call the vertical and the horizontal aspect of the gospel. The vertical. God saves. Why does God save? Because we need salvation. Because we're born into this world by nature, broken by sin, separated from God, and we need God to do the work of salvation because we could never save ourselves no matter how hard we tried. It's a pit that is far too deep to dig ourselves out of. We couldn't build a ladder. We couldn't build a wall. We couldn't stand on the top of the shoulders of those who've gone before. The only thing that saves is God by grace through faith. In Jesus, the vertical element of the gospel is God saves. This is the personal dimension that our relationship with God is made new. But it's not merely a gospel that saves. It's the good news that God reigns, which is the horizontal dimension. See, it's not just about me and God or you and God. It's about the world and God. Because there are things in your life that are broken, yes? Apart from God and Jesus, our brokenness separates us from him. That's true. And the fact that God saves us is gloriously true. But it's not just that we're broken, it's that the world is broken. Is anybody convinced that the world is not broken? It seems like it's the one thing that generally we can all agree on. That the world is not as it should be. And the good news of the gospel is not merely that God saves, it's that God reigns. He's going to bring everything back into alignment with his purposes. He's going to bring everything back into alignment with what is righteous and true and good and beautiful. Is there something that disturbs you about the brokenness of the world? Let me tell you, it disturbs God as well. And the good news that Paul is giving to the church in Rome is that one day, while the power of those things has been destroyed, their very presence is going to be removed. And the whole world will be as it should be, for good forever. This is the gospel of God that Paul is going to spend all of Romans talking about and that we're going to spend years embedded in. Why would we do this? Why would we give this much time to it? Because we want to be a gospel people and to be a gospel people, we have to become fluent in the gospel. Conversant, it's got to become our mother tongue. It's got to become the default, the muscle reflex of our heart. And that is incredibly tricky when we are broken people living in a broken world. Paul has one crucial message for the church in Rome. It's the gospel of God. The gospel that saved Paul is the gospel that saves us. The gospel that proclaims that even murderers can come to God and be forgiven. The gospel that proclaims God's rule over all things. And as Phoebe reads this first line, the Christians in Rome, they carry the story with them in bits and pieces and fragments. Most of them have never met Paul. Most of them will never meet Paul. But they have heard the story of the murderous Pharisee who became a prolific 
church planter. He didn't plant their church, but they know he's an apostle. They know he has suffered so much for the gospel, and they, many of them have experienced the same transformation, and many of them will experience the same transformation as Phoebe reads the letter. The people in this house in Rome, they lean forward. They're on the edge of their seats with bated breath, waiting to hear the good news. And here we are, thousands of years later, and the gospel is as gloriously true as it has ever been. That God is not holding our sins against us, but has invited us to make our home with God in Jesus. Not because you and I are great or have the potential to be great, but because God is great. Not because you or I are good or have the potential to be good, but because God is good. Not because you or I could capture his forgiveness or we could find God on our own, but because God delights in finding us wherever we are. I don't know what part of Paul's life you feel like you're in. You may feel like you look a lot like Paul's life before the letter, totally disinterested from the Lord Jesus. You may feel like, man, I feel like the Lord has been bringing me on the Damascus road. I feel like he's doing something in my life, but I don't have the eyes to see. Or you may feel like Paul writing to the church in Rome, compelled to take this message that has compelled your heart and bring it to the ends of the world. I do not know where you are at today, but God does. And his love and grace is not waiting on a future version of you. It's available to you today in Jesus. That's the gospel. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. And we're going to give as much time as we need to to explore the depths of the treasure chest of Romans over these next few years together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We ask, God, that as we sit under your word, that you would shape our hearts and change our lives. God, I, I just feel compelled that God, there, there might be some who have gathered with us today, either in the first service or in this one, who just feel like their life is before the letter. They just feel like, man, when you were reading that about Paul, man, I just feel like, that's my life. I wouldn't murder anybody, but I just feel far away from God. And I don't know what to do about it. God, there might be some among us who believe that they're at that moment of transformation, that you're doing something in their life, but it's hard to see what it is. And I pray for those people. I pray that you would help them to see and believe, God, that your love is not up for bargain, that you're not withholding it, but that it is available, that they may place their faith in Christ today and walk forever with Jesus. God, for, for us who feel like we're in that church in Rome, hearing this message, God, sitting under it, I pray that you would catalyze our hearts with the warmth of the gospel, that we might be a people marked by the good news in everything that we do. We love you, Lord. We thank you that your love for us is not contingent on our love for you because it would be a weak love indeed. We thank you, God, that it is rooted in the Son, and there it is safe forever. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.